Inside the Law. I'm your host, Mark Gavigan. This is the second of our two-part interview with author and former United States Secret Service agent, Jason Wells. The first part of our interview is in the episode immediately preceding this one. Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook was it for me. My daughter was the age of some of those kids. And I remember reading that there was a, one of the teachers was found cradling one of the, One of the teachers found cradling one of the kids. That's how they found her. And it's, 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 it's horrible. You know, it's such a horrible situation. And I just, I just don't want to see it happen again. I don't want to see it ever happen again. Nobody does, but I don't, I really don't want to see it ever happen again. I mean, like I want to really like do something about it. And I, I hope other people do too, you know, and I, I don't think it'd take a lot if we have more people to get involved, you know, and, and, and get involved with more proactive interventions. I talk to teachers a lot. I talk to teachers. I talk to even at, at, at the principal level and a lot of parents and uh, they are all, um, they, they share my sentiments and um, you start getting into administrative levels. Um, and it's, it, that's where I believe that, that um, at the superintendent level, I believe that's where, um, and it's not about money. There's a reason why it's a nonprofit, <laughs> you know, um, and it's about uh, playing the odds. I think they play the odds. There's 144,000 public schools in America and what 90,000 private schools in America. And I think they play the odds that statistically it's just not going to happen at their place. You know, they're not going to be, and it's not about just targeted violence at their schools, but I think that there's a lot of other, and, and offices and corporations, they look around, they go, well, statistically it's it's infinitesimally small that something's going to happen here you know but they're willing to do enough to have lockdown drills you know they're willing to do enough to administratively to do um you know have fire drills fire alarms let's add a behavioral aspect to it you know not much refresher courses updates case study scenarios i've taught a couple of those uh case study scenarios where i've given a a case study. I've given the background on an individual, but I haven't told people who they are. And uh, I, I give them a checklist and then they go through the checklist and they check off the, as I'm reading the case study to them, they're checking off the indicators that they're, they're supposed to be identifying in the person. And then we review it and whether they would report them or not. Um, sometimes the people that they have are not reportable. Sometimes they are. I think that those are programs that we could implement, that we could apply. And, and you don't have to have me. I gave you all the paperwork in the book. <laughs> you know, I, if you look at it, if you look at the back of the book, I gave them paperwork that they can just Xerox it and photocopy it and everything. So, uh, you know, I mean, hey, if you want to call me and have me come out and give a lecture, or I'll be delighted to. But, <laughs> but I also understand that some people just don't want to do that. Well, then get the book and you can have the paperwork yourself, you know, and do it yourself, you know. So it's incredible to me that really with, a little bit of effort and a little bit of time, even though these waters can run very, very deep and there's so much to learn, but in 40 minutes or an hour, once a year, a teacher, a manager, a principal, That's what they say. If you can make student, it enjoyable parent, and useful learn and enough come out learning That's to recognize something and take that first step, which can lead to prevention. And even if they don't recognize it, they'll feel empowered to do something. Even if they don't remember it, they'll say, well, you know what? 
that's the one message that I try and get across over and over and over when I give training courses or when I talk to people, I say empowerment. Take faith in what you're seeing and what you're feeling. When those goosebumps are standing up on you, when you're seeing something, you don't need a definition. That's a, that you don't is a need, great and I'm not telling you to go pull the fire alarm either. It may just be something like walking up to a person and say, hey, are you okay? Are you feeling all right? That may make the difference between them saying, you know what, I was going to end it all today and I, or I decided not to, to maybe notifying a guidance counselor. If you see something in a kid, you know, you may be driving your, your, your kid home and they may have friends in the back and you may be hearing them gossip. One thing I can tell you right now is kids, they're the best in, intel collectors in the world. They, they collect, I'm a firm believer of that after I, I did a, I've done quite a bit of research on, on kids recently by being, by doing substitute teaching. And I can tell you right now that they are, they are incredible with their Intel collection. The Intel community is employing the wrong people. <laughs> they need to get the kids in there. No, they're doing great people. They employ great people. They employ wonderful people. And, and, but, um, kids are really good at collecting information and disseminating it to each other. And they do a very good job. And sometimes they don't realize what they've got. Sometimes they don't realize that some of the things that they're talking about, they're like, Hey, did you see what Billy built? You see what he brought into school today? I can't believe he got that out of his dad's locker. I didn't even know he was allowed to have it. That was a real bullet, wasn't it? You know, before you realize it, you're like, whoa, you know, hey, maybe I need to tell someone about this. And I can almost guarantee if you're seeing something or you're hearing something and you're reporting something to a guidance counselor or an HR rep, you're probably not the first person to report it. They probably have a book. They probably have something where they're like, okay, thanks for the information. Do you have the right to know what else happens after that? No. That's one thing that's really important. We talked about earlier how you said, you know, what what about if this affects a person negatively in their career? What if it's a false reading, you know? The one thing that needs to be addressed very clear is that even though you report it, that does not give you the right to know the follow-up. That's what I think is important is if you think it affects them negatively, well, you're not going to know what happened. You're not going to know what transpired from it, um, nor should you. This is someone's personal life. You recognize something that happened. That doesn't mean that you have the right to, to be part of the gossip or part of the in. It's not gossip. It's in, it's in a, a proactive investigation to ensure that everything's okay. You know, that is something that I think a lot of people don't really grasp. Sometimes they think because they reported it that they're an in now because they have a little bit of information. No, uh, -uh. you should keep your mouth shut too. Don't be telling all your friends either. It's important that we listen to our kids, and it's important that we if we hear something that we report it and I, pr I can assure you that if you're reporting it to someone, an authority figure or something that they've probably heard it from someone else too. So I should, I should assume if I report something to a guidance counselor, let's say mm -hmm. I should never expect to hear any follow up there. There should be no reason for them to address that. The, that's the act phase that you talked about. We talked about the uh, observe, assess and act. That's uh, what I call OA squared. And the act phase, 90% of the people involved in OA squared are not going to be involved with the action phase. The action phase is a very small group that I call the, um, the behavioral observation assessment team, a boat. And a, a boat is usually a group of people that's um, put together based on their experience and their professional backgrounds. Uh, in a school, it would be a principal, probably the vice principal, guidance counselor, and then maybe some outside authorities, school resource officer. It's usually a police officer who's assigned to the school. Um, I think that's very important to have someone like that on board. Uh, I don't know. It just, it just runs the gamut based on who you would want to put on that committee. But that is the group, the think tank, that's going to work on how they want to address a situation. 
And I think that every organization should have something like that, not just schools. I think businesses, offices, corporations should all have that. I think the biggest issue we have when it comes to reporting conditions are things that you see like in your neighborhood. Who do you report that to? If you see a behavior or an unusual condition in a neighbor, you know, maybe they're just they're putting things out and they shouldn't be doing that. Who do you report that to? Do you call the police? Maybe. I don't know. Just depends on the situation. But when it comes to locations, when it comes to facilities and organizations, people where people are clustered together for a, a academics or education, there's almost always going to be certainly somebody there that you can talk to. And I think that's where you're going to find most of the issues anyway. If you see someone who's just kind of off and they're doing things that are unusual, you probably don't want to call the police. But you may want to talk to their family if that person lives with someone. Or you may want to talk to, if you have access to their relatives, you may want to contact them. Because that's a support group. That's a person who can get them help. Theoretically. Right. You know, I mean, obviously you don't know. I mean, it's, it's a case-by-case basis at that point. I don't think there's any problem with looking at them. And it would just have to be a case-by-case basis, I think. That feels to me like getting really involved in somebody else's business. It is. And I agree with you. You're right. And that is, this is where you have to really, you better be sure. Right. You know, you better be sure. And I, I think that that's where there's, there's some gray area there. Nobody's per- It's not a perfect system. Right. Any little aspect in our society, anything that changes where people can identify things ahead of time is going to be an improvement. Okay. I guess my instinct would be not to dial 911, but to call the police and say, I just want to mention something. Sure. I don't think it's an emergency. I'm right. certainly not a professional. Right. That feels like probably a, an okay thing. I don't think that's bad. I, I err on the side of caution. I, I mean, I make sure. The one thing I do make sure of is, and I think this could address the issue, this is myself personally, is I know all my neighbors. And I know them well. And I interact with them. I communicate with them. I make sure that if there's anything going on that, that on my side, that they know about it. Now, do I make them like get in my business? <laughs> you know, no, obviously not. But do I, I let them know, you know, if we're going out of town or if things are going, you know, how things are going or anything, you know, we're doing okay. Everything's all right. And then I, I make sure that they have an open line of communication with me too, that they, there is a um, cordial relationship I think we've, we've come to the point in our life, in our, in our community, in our national community, where we've become much more um, closed off. And, uh, you know, whereas, um, you know, we're, we're not, people aren't really a village anymore. You know, we have our own little villages in our home and, and that can be, uh, that can be bad in some ways. You know, it's good to, I think it's good to, to keep in touch with your neighbors. And I'm not telling you to go and throw a neighborhood party every week, you know, to, to everyone, um, you know, but, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong about um, getting to know people in your on your block either. I'd like to go through some of the indicators that you point out in your book that every single person in a community can be on the lookout for. Okay. And yes. so we'll start out with, you break them down into three kinds of indicators. Mm-hmm. Early indicators. What are those? Uh, early indicators are those things that you should um, pay close attention to, keep an eye on, but they don't warrant an immediate reaction. So things that you'll, you would see them. And in a lot of ways, they're actually, they're a challenge to recognize in this day and age, because it seems like in many ways to do the unusual 
or to act in an unusual way is almost the social norm. But nevertheless, you should pay attention to them. And you want to look at them based on the severity, the uh, volume, or the, you know, the amount, and how often they occur. So what it sounds like to me, maybe a way that helps me think about this is a big scale and it's tipping one way or the other. And each time, I, each instance of one of these things, mm-hmm. I'm putting another tiny little weight on, on the scale of so, report. Right. And then if it's severe, <laughs> it's a heavier weight. Right. So one of the early indicators is observer discomfort. And one thing that I, I like to do when I'm in training is I tend to throw, I have a, a very, um, it's, it's a big picture on my PowerPoint. And at this point in the training, it's, it's been a PowerPoint and I've been talking and we've been having some discussion and it's a very, I try and make it a jovial um, environment. And then out of nowhere, I'll just throw a picture of uh, Marilyn Manson, uh, the, uh, the performer at his peak. Uh, let me just put it that way where he's dressed in his, um, some radical attire and I'll maybe play some music and, and things. And the reaction from people in, in the group is pretty, it's pretty entertaining. They, uh, they, they kind of are startled. And I, uh, I ask them, I'm like, what if this individual walked in this room right now and sat down with us? Would you be uncomfortable? What if they just sat down and just started taking notes with us? And people are quite honest. And they're like, yeah, I would be uncomfortable. I'm like, why? Because he's dressed the way he is? Because he's, he's wearing what he's wearing? Does that bother you? And they go, well, it doesn't bother me, but it makes me uncomfortable. It's observer discomfort. And I go, well, that's, believe it or not, that's actually good. You should pay attention to those things. There, if somebody enters a room, if you ever had somebody enter a room and it's just the two of you, or maybe it's not, and there's just something about them and you just start to feel awkward, that's what that is. The individual who attacked uh, Virginia Tech, he, um, the professors there who worked with him had major issues with him. And they had reported him on several occasions. And they had nothing really to go on. Um, so the school couldn't really do much to him. Uh, they just felt that there was something off about him. And it got to the point that they had developed a series of code words amongst each other, where if he walked into a room with them alone in their, in their offices, they would pick up the phone and call another teacher and say, hey, um, I just wanted to let you know that the, you know, for example, I don't know if what this was the exact cover, but they'd say, you know, I just want you to know that the, the red chair um, down the hall is is actually blue. Okay, thanks, bye. And that was the code word for, hey, this guy is in my office and you need to get over here. I don't want to be alone with him. So they knew that their, they felt that their observer discomfort was so valid that they were willing to set up code words amongst themselves to protect themselves prior to this the shooting happening. And it turned out to be a, a valid observation on their part but everybody everybody has a story everybody what do you mean if you will go through these indicators as you're reading a book or as you're reading about this you're going to go through it you're going to go hey i remember this guy from school or i remember this girl who did this or i remember this one time when i did that and it's because it's rampant it's everywhere it's happened in everybody's life everybody's got a story even me a guy I went to high school with, I ran track with. He was at my house. We grew up together. We were kids. We had a great time. He killed his mother with a hammer. Had a, just snapped. Went insane. And he and then he, he he was found out in his backyard by the police 
because the neighbor called because he saw him drenched in blood in the backyard. Killed his killed his mother with a hammer. This guy I ran track with. He was a he was a good person. He was a good friend. He went insane, and you know everybody's got a story, even me. Well, I'm sorry that happened. I mean, what a terrible thing to happen. It's to horrible. Oh yeah, of course. But what I'm get, the point I'm getting at is is that it's not unusual for people to be like I. I it tends to happen every time when I'm I'm talking about this this topic or I'm showing these indicators. People say, "Hey, you know what? That reminded me of something that happened in my life once." You know, and sometimes, obviously, I think I think sometimes it's personal too. But then a lot of people tend to bring me. You know, I had a friend of mine who did this, or I had someone who did that, and everything. So. It's something to, important to remember is that everybody has a story because that's part of the empowerment is knowing that you're not overreacting. You, you, you should listen to what you're, you're thinking, what your gut's telling you. You should go with, with that. Get a professional set of eyes on the situation. Of course, absolutely. And I think that's a great, if there's one sentence, I think that's a great, that's a great sentence. I'm going to trademark it right now. You should, you should <laughs> get a professional set of eyes on this. I've had people tell me that, you know, well, you're not a medical professional. What do you, you know, and I, I, you're right. I'm not, I'm not telling you to diagnose a condition. If you see someone fall on the ground and their arm is sticking out of their skin, I'm not telling you to operate on the arm. I'm not even telling you to treat the arm. I'm just telling you to look at it and go, that's a broken arm. I can tell because there's a bone sticking out of it. And I've seen arms before and they don't look like that. So I'm going to go ahead and call 911. I'm going to get a professional in here, a professional set of eyes to take care of this situation. And then I'm going to back away. That's what I'm telling you to do. I'm not telling you to diagnose the condition. I'm telling you to identify it, assess what you need to do, and then act. And hey, identify, oh, I've observed a broken arm. Oh, okay. Well, let me assess it. Well, the person's screaming in agony right now. It doesn't look like it's normal. There's a bone sticking out of the flesh and then act on it. Okay. I'm going to call 911. That clarifies your message. And I think it also makes it seem less onerous to do a good thing. I hope it is where I'm metaphorically banging my head against the wall is that I, I don't want to, uh, I, I, when I talk to organizations and, and people who have the opportunity to, uh, to do some kind of this training, they go, mm, you know, it sounds like you're, you're getting into a medical field here. And I don't know if that you're qualified. I don't think anybody's qualified. I agree. It, it, I understand what you're saying that, that it would sound like a medical field, but it's not. When I was a Secret Service agent, I was I was trained to identify these conditions too, but I wasn't a psychologist. I wasn't a criminal psychologist or a behavioral psychologist. Um, I was trained by them uh, with these conditions uh, to look at these conditions, but I wasn't trained to diagnose them or give them medication or anything like that. I was trained to identify that um, they had some uh, some indicators that needed to be further processed. Okay, let's go back to the Cliff Notes. I'll go through your list here. Uh, I'll continue with the early indicators and then just think of it as like a bullet point. So I'll mention it and just kind of give a sentence or two about what it is. Maladaptive behavior. Maladaptive behavior is being, being exposed to a certain environment and not being able to adapt to that environment and that causing a lot of stress and uh, a lot of um, pressure in an individual. Uh, we see this commonly uh, with kids transferring to new schools. I think the movie Inside Out is a great way to look at it from a, a childlike perspective. The main character gets moved to a different school and she starts to have emotional shutdown. And obviously the, the main characters are her emotions dealing with that situation. That's a happy way to look at maladaptive behavior. A more a dark 
but realistic, not realistic, but dark turn of maladaptive behavior would be like uh, the movie Full Metal Jacket. At the beginning, uh, where they're in boot camp, the main character was a, uh, or not the main character, the uh, one of the supporting characters uh, was a private Gomer Pyle, was unable to perform at the expectation that the other recruits were, the other uh, boot camp recruits were, and uh, was targeted for that. And it resulted in him having a, a mental breakdown and killing himself and another person. And so... Maladaptive behavior. Maladaptive behavior. Disregarding social norms. It is exactly what um, it sounds like. It's a, a disregard of social norms would be something that uh, we perceive as just not happening regularly and there's really no explanation for it. I will tell you that from my own personal perspective, I was at a grocery store once and I saw a teenager, a teenage girl. She's about 17 years old, looked like, and she was sitting in the grocery cart while her grandmother was pushing her around. She was interacting with her. There was no issues. She was not uh, debilitated. She just wanted to be in a grocery cart being pushed around. That was, it's not something you see every day. A teenager jumping into a, uh, the grocery cart around the food that you're shopping for and that her grandmother, I assume it was her grandmother, it was an older woman, a more distinguished lady, was okay with it. It seemed like there wasn't any um, any need for that and it's not something that's common. And uh, I will tell you that I think most parents or grandparents probably wouldn't have gone along with it. So I think that that's the disregard for social norms. Okay. And, and again, no, no reason to probably rush and call 911. But if right. you see this right. and a bunch of other things, right. you know, it's one, right. one check. On exactly. The- it's one check. Exactly. And then the other thing is, is that it was a lack of care of other people around. Nobody seemed to care. She didn't seem to care what other people thought of her. She'll be running the world in 10 years. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be working for her. Irrational behavior. Just as it is, a radical thinking with, with no logical explanation for it. One thing that I bring up in, as an example is the game of soccer or football in Europe is extremely popular to the point that it becomes uh, incredibly violent. There's no explanation for this. People have died at these things. It's a soccer game. It's a game of soccer. I am passionate about sports. I'm as passionate as the next guy. But I'm not going to go out and make blood bombs or urine bombs or Molotov cocktails to uh, incinerate my opponent's fans. It's irrational. Uh, and then these people will turn around and they will go to work the next day. <laughs> but at, for whatever reason, they have, they have checked their logic at the door. They've checked their humanity at the door when they go to these these soccer tournaments. I've read that it has something to do, that particular situation has something to do with the group mentality. Sure, groupthink is always obviously a big issue, you know, and uh, you're right. If, if you see somebody doing well and he's not getting in trouble, it must be okay. And so, yes, I could see where that would be a, a an option too. And that's just something that I've tended to use is the irrational, irrational behavior. Well, it uh, certainly does paint the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book, I, boy, I'll think of it as soon as we uh, shut down, but they talked about how it, the, the power of this group, things that uh, as an individual, I would never think of doing, but as part of this group where we're all doing it, I'm, you know, leading the charge. Well, I think, think I've, I, I think 
I'll take a step further and say that I'm sure that most of us have done things like that before. And I'm not going to go into specifics in my life, but <laughs> I can assure you that that has happened. And then I've looked back and gone, you know, I can't believe I threw that egg. Let me just put it that way. All right. And maybe in my youth, but, uh, you know, I, uh, all so. right, well done. So, uh, we talked about observer discomfort. Yes. Unconventional beliefs. This is a belief that doesn't jive with the working or understanding world. I was teaching a class on this um, number of years ago, and I brought up uh, 9-11 truthers, um, individuals who believe that the attacks of 9-11 were what is commonly believed as a um, Al-Qaeda terrorist attack. 9-11 truthers typically believe that there was some kind of a conspiratorial background to it involving the United States government and our reasons for getting in the war and, and whatnot. And so I brought it up as an example of unconventional behavior, that people who believe this are, are acting unconventionally. And I, I had uh, one of the individuals in my class became very animated and uh, let me know that she herself was a 9-11 truther. So I need to clarify, and I still stand by it, that 9-11 truthers are, do exhibit unconventional behavior. And I'll tell you why. Because 600 years ago, there were only a few people in the world who believed that the world was round. Almost everybody on earth believed that the world was flat. The people who believed that the world was round 600 years ago developed or showed unconventional behavior. We've had science and evidence to suggest that they were correct from the beginning. Maybe 600 years from now, we'll have evidence to suggest that 9-11 truthers had it right all along. I'm not suggesting they will, but we may. But for now, their thinking is unconventional. The vast majority of the world believes that the attacks of 9-11 were a terrorist attack brought on by Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda followers. It makes sense. And I also think your remarks are going to stand the test of time. <laughs> Centuries from now, they'll say, he got it right. He hatched where he should have been. He, he hit it. He hit the mark on the head. So, uh, <laughs> so I have to clarify that now because now I, um, I've, I've come across 9-11 truthers and they have been extremely offended that I uh, bring it up. And I stand by my uh, – you show me that the vast majority of people follow your, your, uh, your beliefs and I will, uh, I'll, I'll change it over. I'll change my – my thinking so well for now they suffer or my argument check. not my thing my argument but yes it is my thinking also but anyway, yes uh, and the last of the early indicators behavioral suffering this is um those preeminent lead-ins to things such as depression when someone seems to be in uh, distress emotionally they may be dealing with a, uh, a tragic event in their life this is one of those things where I believe that you don't need the other indicators to do something about it. If you know somebody's going through a personally hard time, you need to make the effort to help them out to do this. Otherwise, it's going to continue a downward spiral if they're not getting some kind of support. I'm not saying necessarily counseling, but they may need some kind of a, a moral support or something like that. I've had friends who have lost children. I've had friends who have been divorced. And some, sometimes they need to speak with counseling. Sometimes they just need... A shoulder, but it's evident that they're suffering, that they are dealing with a, a very challenging point in their life. And I think we know it when we see it. I, I, I do believe that. I don't believe you need to be observant to know when somebody is dealing with a hard time in their life. And we need to be proactive about it. And just reaching out and listening for 
15 minutes, as you as you pointed out, can can make all of the difference. I am a firm believer in that. I am a firm believer that I've had people do it for me, and it has changed my perspective on life in a lot of ways. When I I felt like I was at my my worst, at my lowest, rock bottom. That there were people who cared, and I have tried to reciprocate for others. And I I, cho- I do believe that. I'm not telling you to be all kumbaya and, and and everything, but it's enough just to know that somebody cares, cares enough to make sure that you're okay. You are welcome to pass on this, but I want to ask, do you want to share a little bit more about what that terrible time was and, and how someone reached out to you? I, I had a hard time with my, uh, towards the end of my career with the secret service. Uh, I left in good standing, but I left on my own volition and I left because of the, the hardship of the job. I don't bear them any ill will. And I, I have the, they, they have my respect and I just wasn't emotionally, I emotionally, mentally strong enough to continue with the, the stress of the work. Um, so I left on my own. I, uh, I, I let them know, you know, I, I, they don't like their broken toys. <laughs> and so, uh, I, I probably could have stuck around, but I think it would have taken a, a long lasting effect on my family and, uh, on, on me. So I, that's why I left. I left on my own volition for that reason. And, uh, it was a hard time and I owe, I owe so much to my, my spouse, my, my lovely wife and, uh, for, for carrying me through it. And, uh, and my, my, I had some very close friends who, who never, they always saw me as Jason Wells. They never saw me as Jason Wells, secret service agent. And, uh, they, they liked me for me and, and they wanted to be around me and they wanted to make sure that I was okay, that I was back to my old, um, hell raising self. (laughs) And I think we're getting there. I think we're good. Um, uh, I will tell you that this book was very therapeutic in a lot of ways for that. It, it helped provide information for people that I thought could be useful. And it also, it also gave me a, uh, a means to do some some self-awareness, some soul-searching. You were an almost obsessive long-distance runner. I was. That's and right. also in the Secret Service, by the nature of the job, mm-hmm. it probably took almost every waking moment of your life. So in both of those, uh, I wonder if this phrase applies, and it's not my phrase at all, but athletes, they say athletes die twice because you lose so much when you are no longer that competitive athlete. And then probably it sounds like maybe something similar when you're no longer in a job like the secret service that can be defining. It was, it's, it's very much like that. Um, I think to this day, uh, I still have there. It's, you know, when I, uh, I'll tell you when I, when I went through the, the process of going through the, uh, the, the interview and the, the application process, which was almost two years, it was a 20 month app from, from cradle to grave from the, the day I dropped the the application in to my first day on the job, not starting training, just my first day walking in, was a, about twenty months. It was almost two years. Um, and, so just so I understand, beyond once you walked in, then training began. Yes, then training was eight months long. You go through four months of training at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, and then you go back to the James J. Raleigh Training Center in Beltsville, Maryland. Uh, so there's two training academies, um, which you go through. So it's, it's a very rigorous 
time. And that's day one. <laughs> that's for eight months of that. So it's, it's a very rigorous. Um, and they, they make sure that their, their individuals are, are well prepared. They do a very good job of, of preparing people. But during my application process, I remember one of the individuals who interviewed me in one of my panel interviews. He said, no matter where you go in life, whatever you do, you will be remembered in some aspect as a secret service, whether it's a former agent or a current agent or someone, people will identify you in that regard. It might even be on your tombstone. And it was his way of saying, so you, you better be damn sure. And he was right. People still associate me with that. And, uh, I haven't been in since 2014. Just, it just is what it is. So those were the early indicators. Let's get into the danger indicators. So first of all, what's a danger indicator? These are things that, um, what I call red flags, you should act on these as quickly as possible. Uh, they have a, uh, a seriousness to them that suggests that you need to, uh, involve other people and notify other people. Does it necessarily mean that you need to notify law enforcement? That's a definite possibility, but you definitely need to have, you don't need to blow it off. You don't need to say, well, I'm overreacting. This is where empowerment comes in and you need to do something. This is the, the meat, the real meat of the book. These are the ones that I think are the most likely that an individual will come across and they need to. So in addition to it being the most likely that they will come across, it is the most important that they address in some aspect. I think it's so helpful to know this is important. Absolutely. You definitely want to have definition to what you're seeing. And that was important for me because I believe I, I've mentioned it before and I'll say it again. I genuinely believe that people don't act on something because it's not defined to them. I believe that people look at something and they say, well, I don't know what this means. I know it's bad. I know there's something going on right now that I'm getting uh, concerned about, but because I don't know what it is, I'm overreacting. And so it's important that we defined what they need to be looking for. Uh, I think that a lot of times people just, they, they need that. They need that, that, that hard piece of paper that says, this is what you're looking for. And I've done the best I can. It's great. I mean, almost a playbook. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I'm going to run through each of these danger indicators. And again, Mm -hmm. as sort of a bullet point fashion, share a sentence or two or an example about each one and give us a sense of them, please. Significant and sudden changes in a person's life. If people forget everything that I've ever said to them or everything in my book, I think they say that typically people remember or retain 10% of the things that they read or that they um, are lectured on. I want them to remember or retain this topic right here. Sudden or significant changes in a person's life for a danger indicator. This is the highest percentage of individuals who are studied in the, in the case study project that the Secret Service conducted in the 90s that we talked about earlier. Almost every single individual who committed a targeted violence against another person had sudden or significant changes in their life. 
things like they lost their job, they had a divorce, they found out their uh, significant other had an affair, they were embarrassed, humiliated in public, they lost their house, all these stressors that we've all dealt with that makes you feel like your world comes crashing down and that there's just, everything is just over and you fall to your knees and you cry to God, help me please. We've all experienced some kind of calamity or something like this in our life. I hope people have only experienced it a few times. Those sudden changes are what motivate our high probability. I believe the percentage is 98% of the time are what have motivated an individual to act in cases where they were studied in targeted violence. In the Exceptional Case Study Project, they studied an astounding 98%. It's, a, it's, an, it's almost 100%. It's an astounding number. So the point I'm getting at is we all experience these things. If you see someone who's experiencing this, be proactive in their life. If they're going through a hard time in their life, if they are having a divorce, if, they're lo- if they've lost their job, this is where you need to get involved. You may need to get involved with their family. You may need to talk to their spouse or their their support group. You may be part of that support group. You may be the spouse. You need to be involved. You need to be doing something about it. If it's a kid that you know about at school who's going through a sudden horrible issue or something, you need to make sure that the faculty is aware of it, that the guidance counselor is aware of it. If you know that someone's going through a hard time at your office, you need to make sure that supervisors and, and human resources are aware of these situations. These cataclysmic sudden changes in people's lives. And when I say these things, they're typically negative. They're typically horrible issues. You know, I mean, somebody has a child, they're usually not, you know, that's a huge change in someone's life, but that's not something that they're going to usually do something terribly upsetting or violent because they had a kid. You know what I mean? Right. So, so I mean, these are typically negative things that happen in people's lives. When I find a duffel bag full of money, I'll be fine. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You you win the lottery, something tells me you're not going to have a cataclysmic event, you know, for the negative. So, uh, anyway, um, that is the one thing that I just can't stress over and over is how important sudden changes in people's lives. Um, and it's funny because we know this in life. We know this in, in every aspect of our life. The running joke is, is that you don't, you know, you, you always fire somebody on a Friday, you know, so they have time to cool off on Monday, right? There was a movie. I mean, in pop culture, we see it. There was a movie by Michael, starring Michael Douglas called Falling Down. That's what this is about. A sudden change in his life based on he just had enough of the traffic and he just went insane and just started going and beating people up all over the city with a baseball bat. You know, I mean, that's what the, the movie was about, you know, and we know these things already. We already know this in life. We've seen it in pop culture. We've seen it in our regular work days. And we just don't even give it a second thought. But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. And some of these terrible events cause people to back away. I mean, I know that if somebody loses somebody dear to them, parent or sibling, or that it's hard for me to be around somebody who's really grief-stricken, so I might be less likely to reach out to them than if something less terrible had happened. And I don't think that's anything, I don't think that's anything bad. We're all like that. You know, it's, um, it, it is hard to do. 
you know, and I agree with you and, and you're human, you know, that's what we are. We know I'm the same way, you know, you don't, I, I, I do, I do uh, agree with that. You know, we don't necessarily want to be like that. I'm not saying it's easy. It's interesting that our nature as people sometimes drives us in the wrong direction from what mm. would actually be better right. either for ourselves or for the world. Right. And, and keep in mind, I mean, this is where you start getting into the gray area where counselors get involved too, you know, and, and you can be the segue to that. Get a professional set of eyes. On Absolutely. Them. Ears. Absolutely. Okay. Concern of others. So when I say that, when I write concern of others, it's what you're recognizing from what other people are observing. You have to understand that you may be the person who is being given the information about someone else. Someone else may have taken the assessment, the observation, the assessment, the action step to report it. You may be, before you, without even knowing it, you may be the reportee. You may be the person who's receiving the information. The concern of others is from people like their family member or their friends or someone who you just happen to hear in the gossip circle and they don't know what to do with it. And they're bringing it to you. Maybe they're bringing it to you because you're a confidant or maybe you're someone who they just, they need some, some insight. You shouldn't ignore it. It's important that you take the next step and you, you don't let the communique stop with you because that person's taken the effort to bring it somehow to you. And as far as you know, it may be off their plate now. In all likelihood it is. Yeah. You may not be in a professional sense, be the guidance counselor or the HR, but that doesn't mean that because they've brought it to you that they're going to bring it to someone else now too. You need to take the initiative. You need to encourage them to take it to someone else. Don't let it stop with you is what I'm getting at. Uh, that's what concern of others. Is. Okay. That, thank you. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read through the motivations for why people engage in violent rampage. If any jump out at you or you want to share some more about them or an example, please do. Notoriety or fame. This is something like uh, in the event of um, the individual who assassinated Robert F. Kennedy, Sirhan Sirhan. Um, he was quoted as saying, and I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but something to the effect of, they can gas me. They can put me in the electric chair. They can kill me. But the one thing everybody will remember is that Sirhan Sirhan killed Robert F. Kennedy. That was his motivation, was that he was remembered. Why? I don't know. I mean, I'm not insane, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, an, it's, not a, it's not a sane thought. But in his delusional mind, he wanted to make sure that everybody knew who he was. So there you go. So his motivation was notoriety and fame. That was his motivation of causing violence against another human being. Cry for help. A lot of times this is uh, focused on people who uh, attempt suicide more than anything. They, um, they are looking for um, attention. Uh, attention is such a, a, a light word with the seriousness of, of suicide attempts. But um, they are motivated for causing harm to themselves so they, they attempt to harm themselves, and that is their motivation. Okay. Revenge. Pretty cut and dry. We see this a lot. Everything from lover's quarrels. You know, people will target an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or someone who left them, someone who, had, who they felt jaded by. 
we see this regularly. Uh, revenge is a typically common is a typically common uh, uh, recipe for violent response. Delusions of grandeur. This is the concept that you're larger than what you are. You're larger than life. You believe that you're the something that is uh, more than you are. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were the uh, the individuals who uh, committed the uh, Columbine massacre. And prior to their prior to their their attack, they there was evidence to suggest they were bullied in school, and that they had created a, an alternate persona uh, that they called the trench coat mafia, and. They wrote in journals, and they they were known to uh, make themselves out to be this this duo of of macabre assassins, and they fulfilled that fantasy to a degree. Bringing attention to a cause or concern. This is hard. This is hard to see, but a lot of times you see this with organizations. One that comes to mind is uh, the Elf. The Earth Liberation Front, they're a, um, or they were, they might not be around anymore, but I know back in the day they were a organization that was sought out um, protecting the Earth from individuals that, or, and corporations that they believed were causing environmental damage, and they did so in a terrorist capacity. So they would leave, uh, if they would go out to places where they knew uh, there were going to be People cutting down trees with that with chainsaws, and they would they would implant chains and 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 metal into the tree so that when the chainsaw hit it, it would cause damage and and uh, backfire on the on the the men who were cutting down the trees. So terrorist action for a cause. And then lastly, mental health indicators. I mentioned at the beginning, and I I cannot, and I I know I mentioned this several times in the book, and I cannot express this enough. The vast, vast majority of people who have, who are diagnosed with mental health conditions or have mental health conditions, whether they've been diagnosed or not, are not not violent. This is uh, it's just that the people who have been studied, who have violence, also have shown to have mental health conditions in the past. So the people who have mental health conditions aren't violent, but the people who are violent have shown to have those conditions, in addition to other things too. So why do I put them in there? I certainly don't put them in there to diagnose, for people to diagnose the condition. I put them in there because, and I, I certainly don't put, put them in there, these different types of mental health conditions that are have been commonly associated with people who have violent behavior so that you can be wary or concerned with someone who has the, a condition like this. I put them in there because you may come across a situation where an individual has notified you that they have a condition or in some capacity you have found out that they have a condition and you've seen other other indicators. I don't know what the situation is, but it's better to have the information and not need it than need the information and not have it. So that's why I put it in there. It's not to diagnose. I have to preface that many times. I think I prefaced it probably through about half the book. <laughs> so uh, we are not mental health professionals, but it's always good to have the definition of some of these mental health conditions that some of these assailants have had in the past. I'm going to bounce around a little mm -hmm. bit. Targeted violence. In virtually every single instance, there's a display of behavior associated with planning an attack. That's correct. Almost all the time. How come we're not seeing these things? Well, 
I think we are seeing them, and I think we're not doing anything about them. I believe that that we have, and and this goes back to the uh, exceptional case study project that we talked about. And then I also wanted to add that after the Columbine shooting, the Secret Service jointly worked on a a similar uh, follow up study that took individuals who had attacked schools and academic institutions and corporations and businesses. And they worked jointly with the Department of Education on it, and it was called the uh, Safe School Initiative. So these two are where I've, I've received a lot, I got a lot of this information from. Um, so you can trace those. The findings were basically the same. Um, there really wasn't anything that I saw that was, that was different. So a lot of this came from one of those two. I wanted to, I meant to mention that. So yes, the individuals, what does that mean that these are pre premeditated, preplanned actions. It means that somebody didn't wake that they didn't wake up and decide on a wild hair that they were going to throw their life away, that they had no concept of, of what they were going to do, and they were just going to walk into a facility and start shooting the place up. These actions were calculated. These actions were methodical, they were planned. And one thing I talk about with danger indicators are communication. It's important that if you're hearing somebody talk about how they're planning on doing something or that they're researching it, you definitely need to do something about it. And what I also, what I tend to associate it to is I'll ask people, you know, well, I'll ask you, Mark, have you ever bought a new car? Sure. And when you got the car, did you take it home and put it in the garage and forget about it and kind of go about your day or, and just, that was it? I was proud of that car. Of course I you were. Parked you, it prominently. Of course I you did. drove it around whenever you I You walked outside and you said, look at that car. That's my car. Let me take a picture of it. You probably put it out on the internet, you know, showed some people, look at my picture. You know, I know I did. You know, I, I, I you know, I, I, you take pictures of your car and, and if you don't, then you've probably seen people who do. You're very proud of it. It took time. It took hard work. It took effort. In these individuals' minds, that's their car. This is a methodical planning. They're putting together an attack and they've got to avoid certain things and they've got to do certain things. And this is taking up their time and it's in their mind all the time. They're not going to work and coming home and going, well, how am I going to plan this attack next week that I'm doing? It's always on their mind. It's what they're always thinking about. They can't help but communicate it. As the day gets closer, they start getting giddy with excitement. It's not enough to put into a journal or a video that they, they have to share it. They have to brag. They have to boast. And that's why communication is so key because you say it. You say, how do we not know about these things? I think we do. I think that these individuals are talking about it. They're discussing it. And the people who they're reporting or saying it to, these, quote, individuals of trust, their friends or their siblings or their parents or aren't saying anything. They're going, well, he's overreacting. He's just being silly. Because I'll tell you something, go through all the news clippings of all the incidents that occur in America in the last 10 years that involved weapons or violence, that involve these targeted violence situations, and find, I'll, I'll tell you, after about a, a couple days, after about a week, people start coming out of the cracks, and you'll see what they're saying. And they say one of two things. He or she seemed like a nice person. I never imagined that they would do this. That's one thing. The other thing is, 
Well, he said a couple things here and there, but I never imagined he was serious. I mean, I didn't think – I just thought he was just goofing off, you know, playing those games or doing those things. You know, I didn't think he was serious about that stuff. It happens. People know. They just don't feel empowered enough to say anything about it. And part of the message of this book is when you get that information, don't Correct. brush it aside. Correct. Do something with yep. it. Yep. Empowerment. Absolutely. Do something with it. Jason, I want to talk to you about bullying and bullying is oftentimes at the heart of what's caused these people to eventually undertake this tragic violence. I agree. Yes. You were bullied starting at seven years old. Can you tell us a little bit about that and then tell us how bullying in general manifests itself? Sure. Um, well, I will say that um, my experience, and I think that uh, I don't like making it out like it was a, it was a personal experience, obviously, but I think that there's so many people who've had similar situations. I really do. Um, I, and I would say that mine was a conventional means. It was a, one individual targeting me and it was a physical uh, violence that reached the point, a crescendo where I think it's one of two responses is that people tend to fall into a shell and they become cloistered in themselves and they don't either they get out of that environment or they they change environment something something happens but they remain in that shell or the other response is that people just snap you know for want of a better term and that's kind of what happened to me I was more of the latter and I uh I finally stood up to the the individual and and um and it, it changed me it changed me to the point that I I just didn't want to see that happen to anybody else ever again. Um, and I didn't tolerate it. I, I had more confidence in myself to, to stand up to, uh, to bullies. And, and I think that sometimes that, that is necessary that you have to, you have to face challenges in life to, to deal with those, those situations. And it's what happened with me. I also think that nowadays the bullying that is happening in our society is far worse. And that's with, with cyber, cyber bullying. Cyberbullying transcends age. It transcends professionalism. Every time you're on a social network like Facebook and you see somebody having a video done of themselves without their permission and they've done something to make an ass of themselves, they've fallen or they got beat up or something, something that we're all guilty of, that we've all had happen to us, but the magical video recorder of the telephone, the, the handheld telephone makes it possible for us to record it now and get put out on the internet. Every time you hit that thumbs up or every time you write something about it, you, the grown adult, you're contributing to that. You're contributing to that bullying. You may think you're not, but you're not the person in that video who's watching one million people see it and are mocking you and making fun of you. And we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it too. I'm guilty of it every day. I still have to catch myself and say, I can't watch this stuff. I can't do this stuff. It's not right. And we don't personalize it. We just see it as some person on the internet. And, and that, that person's going through life, knowing that they're out there on the internet and they're reading the comments and they're reading the messages and they're, they know their faces out there and they know that they're now a, 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 a quote celebrity for all the wrong reasons. 
Right. You know, and that bullying carries. It goes wherever you're at. And and you're not being you're not being conventionally bullied by the guy in your school hallway like I was in seventh grade. You're going to other locations and you're you're seeing adults who know about it and you're seeing you know, you're seeing adults who are writing things to you. Adults, not kids, you know, and this is such it's it's and and it transcends your age. You know where where you're supposed to be living in a professional life and a personal life, and now you're bullying. You're being bullied. You know, for something that you happened to you that somebody may have caught on a on a camera. It's uh, it's terrible. It's a terrible situation that we're in right now. And I know people will accuse me of like, well, you know, they're just being oversensitive. No, no, they're not. It's perception. Could I take it? Maybe. I don't know. You know, I don't know. You don't know how you'd take it or how I'd take it, you know? And so I think cyberbullying is a major, major issue right now and how that's evolved. You asked about evolution. I think it's gotten worse. It's, it's Bullying has gotten by far worse. It's not physical, but it's definitely uh, affects people's egos and, and transcends long, longer timelines. And that it's out there permanently. Exactly. It doesn't go anywhere. You can't get rid of it. You know, it's, it's, it's always there. So. And there's no way to defend yourself against it. You can't stand up to that's that exactly bully right. the way you did that's when a, you were That's kid. exactly right. The adversary is, is non-existent. It's in the cloud. I guess that's what they call it, the cloud. I don't know. Right. I'm kind of a... <laughs> I'm, I'm old-fashioned. <laughs> I'm more conventional in more than one way. Let me so. check out. I'll call you on my rotary phone. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I'll take my carriage. Right, right. Is bullying different? from what you experienced and what you described online versus what we see when there's this violent rampage and the, the person there had bullying in their history. Well, you know, that I think every case is different. And I, I certainly don't know the details of what those individuals personally experienced. Like, I know that like Mark Lapine was the individual who uh, shot the Ecole Polytechnic School in Canada back in the 80s. And his target were females, specifically females. He actually let the males out of the, the room that he was holding hostage and began to subsequently execution-style kill the women that were in the room. And he felt that he was being bullied by women, by women, by in general. And yet there were other people who, Klebold and Harris, who we talked about earlier from Columbine, and looking at their background, they it looks like theirs was a conventional style bullying too, just on a, a larger scale, more several individuals versus one bully that they avoided. So I think it runs the gamut. I think that there's a, there's a lot of different aspects. The important thing is going back to what we talked about earlier with cyberbullying, conventional bullying, whatnot, it's perception. It's perception is reality. Whether there's a person who is, they feel like they're being treated unfairly by a, a a gender or whether they're being physically abused by kids in school it's how they're perceiving the ultimate end result is the humiliation that's what really is the damage is the humili- the public humiliation the after effects the scar the emotional scars the public humiliation are what really affect somebody in that aspect so and then tying it back into your list of motivations, that's probably revenge. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Or changes in their life. I think public humiliation is one of the negative changes, sudden negative changes in a person's life, too. Somebody who has been moved to a different location, had a sudden change in their life, and they're getting bullied at their new school. 
there you go. Sudden change in their life caused public humiliation, total crash. I wouldn't have put that together now that you say it. No. Huh. There you go. Okay. I want to talk to you for a moment about stalking. You said that one of your classmates at the Secret Service Academy, I Mm -hmm. don't think it's actually called that, Mm -hmm. said that stalking is when two people are on a date, but only one of them knows it. Yes. And it was mentioned in a, it's obviously a very serious subject that was told in a, in a, a, a joking kind of manner, but there is a truth of sorts to that, that you have an obsessed individual, a person who um, fancies uh, another for one reason or another, and it's uh, not reciprocated. That's kind of what the point of it is. It could go to all kinds of extremes. Uh, in the book, I make mention of one of the, my family members who was, uh, hers was more of a, a long-term situation where the individual had taken some pretty radical action by going visiting her over long, huge distances to profess his love. But then when he got there and saw her on the college campus, he didn't approach her and talk with her. He didn't, he didn't do those things that would be socially acceptable. He didn't let her know he was coming. He didn't let her know that he, or asked her if he could show up, you know, or asked if they could get together. He just decided that he thought in his mind that it would be romantic for him to arrive, uh, leave her a flower on her vehicle, and then he proceeded to let her get a get a notifi- uh, get a letter and let her know how pretty she looked in her outfit. So thinking about thinking he's thinking he looks like you know that she's going to be swooning, you know, whereas all she was concerned about was there's a, man, a strange man somewhere on this campus who's been watching me all day and decided to leave me a flower. She's not going to call him. She's going to call her dad. That's the man she really trusts. You know, she's going to call so you know she's going to call dad for help. You know, and and she should. These are not healthy behaviors. Obviously, mostly uh, females are dealing with stalking issues. I've not had that, thankfully. It's one of the advantages to having a a, a face made for podcasts. Is that I think I, <laughs> I don't think I have too many stalking issues. So, so, but uh, and I don't mean to make light of it because it is a very serious subject, and it motivates people to do violent things. Hinkley comes to mind rather quickly. John Hinkley Jr. Uh, was obsessed with Jodie Foster. And he was motivated to attack President Reagan because in his diseased mind, he felt that this would show Jodie Foster how powerful he was, which she looked at him like everything else, like everyone else did, you know, that he's insane. So clearly that didn't work. So, So you have to be very careful. People who are stalking another individual are already unstable. You just have to be concerned with what they're willing to do to gain the attention of the person who they um, are infatuated with. Okay. What should a stalking victim do? Stalking is a crime and, and they need to uh, become involved with getting law enforcement intervention. This is another example of somebody who thinks that they're overreacting. They say, well, you know, this guy's obsessed with me. I'm just going to, I don't want to get people worried. I don't want to worry my parents. I don't want to worry my, my office. I don't want to start drama in my work. You know, no, you need to do those things. You need to notify people. You need to, if you're a vic, if you're being victimized by stalking incidents, you need to make sure that people are well aware that this is happening 
and I believe that in this case, law enforcement would be extremely helpful. They would be able to absolutely direct you as to what to do next based on the case. Are the laws and procedures currently on the book, on the books, correct for handling stalking situations? I think that there's a lot of changes that are constantly going about, especially with regards to how the internet laws are constantly evolving, um, trying to keep up with the evolution of the software itself. What constitutes stalking online? Does it exist? I believe it does. Is it pr hard to prove? I believe it is. But people know when someone is uh, looking at social pages and following somebody socially and sending things out, and they don't want them to do that. Um, so the laws, laws also apply typically state by state. Stalking is not a federal crime, a federal issue, I don't believe. It might, it might fall under something like a, a wire investigation of something like that, you know, where cyber, cyber crimes federally going across like wires right. or uh, lines of communication. But right now, I, I believe that local law enforcement would be the, uh, for individual cases, would be where, where to start. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, I want to take a quick look at what you're doing in the near future, what you're going to be working on. I understand you just wrote the foreword to a book that is coming out to a two-time New York Times best-selling author. Tell us about that. That's right. I have a uh, I have a, a good friend and a former associate of mine. We were uh, in the Secret Service together, and we were actually in the same field office. And uh, we left about two years apart. Uh, his name is uh, Dan Bongino, and he's a um, a political activist now. He has a, a podcast called The uh, Renegade Republican. He does quite a bit of um, conservative radio. He fills in for, I know he's filled in for uh, Sean Hannity and Mark Levin um, in the past. He's done some very uh, quality political work. He does, uh, he's a guest on, on CNN and Fox News. And, and he, like you said, he's, been, he's written two uh, excellent books. Uh, his first one was uh, Life in the Bubble, which was about his time in the Secret Service. And the second one he wrote was um, The Fight which is a, a political book, nonfiction, both nonfiction. And he's getting ready to come out with a third book about, uh, well, it's about the Secret Service, and I'll leave it at that. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. But I think it's, I've read it. It's excellent. And uh, I had the privilege of being asked by Dan to write the foreword for the book, which was a, a great honor. And I don't use that word uh, lightly. Words like honor are, are very important to me, and, and it was a great honor. Um, I was very flattered, and... Uh, I'm very excited. I was very proud of the forward that I wrote. He seemed to like it. Uh, and so uh, it's coming out at the end of September. His book is coming out at the end of September, and uh, it is called The Secret Service. And I hope that uh, you get a chance to read it, and I hope you enjoy the forward. Terrific. I will make sure to have a link to some website of, of his to make sure that anyone following this can actually get to the author's page and access the book and listen to the right. Renegade Republican and Whatever else. Yeah. I guess I plug Dan more than me. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and then um, I am in the process of writing a, uh, I guess it would be a follow-up to Our Path to Safety. It's for, the working title is um, Our our Future uh, for Safety. And it's a, I want to say it's a, a middle school, high school, college, uh, meant for that kind of age group. Um, for the younger generation, the things that they can do to watch out for and the things that they can do to help and, and how to approach situations. Because I think it's different when you're a kid versus an adult. 
which is my nonfiction. Um, I'm working on that right now. And then I have, I have a promise to my daughter to write her a fiction that she has wanted for as long as I can remember. She actually had an idea for a story. And uh, she came to me and, and said, Daddy, do you think you can write this for me? And I, I looked at it and I said, that's pretty good. That's I go. That's that's not bad. You know, you you've got a great imagination. So, I'm yes, I'm I'm stealing my daughter's story and I'm writing it. Uh, it's going to be a fiction endeavor. Um, so, we'll see how that goes. But until I get more stuff down, I'm going to keep it at that. So, well, that's wonderful, and it sounds like you're going to have plenty to do through the rest of 2017. Yes, I I think I am. I think uh I think I'm going to be be busy, but uh, I always got time to come back to uh, Inside the Law. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Where can people find you online? What's the best social network or website? I'm a pretty introverted guy by nature, but there is a uh, there is a jasonwellsauthor.com and that's all lowercase, all one word. And then probably the best way to get a hold of me or or find out what I'm writing, like day to day writing, is if you go to the writer's website, Quora.com, Q U O R A dot com. Um, that is a popular social website that focuses on subject matter experts answering questions about materials that they know. And I try and get on there every day and people can go on there and follow me and uh, message me. They can message me questions uh, if they had about the Secret Service or other things. Um, I do have other things in my life going on. (laughs) So they can ask me questions about, uh, you know, I enjoy uh, cooking on my big green egg. They can ask me about that and I can answer questions. And I'm, I'm heavily and actively involved with Quora. So I think those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Obviously, I'm on Facebook, and I have a and my uh, my nonprofit, National Advancements for Proactive Safety, uh, is uh, take-naps.org. So take naps. It's kind of an easy way to remember. <laughs> so uh, that's what I like to do: take naps. So <laughs> thank you for having me. This has been a great privilege. Well, it's certainly been my pleasure. I want to thank Jason Wells, former Secret Service agent, for being on Inside the Law, and we'll hopefully see you again soon. Absolutely. To keep track of all our episodes and see the show notes and links, visit our website, insidethelaw.co. That's insidethelaw.co. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to our wonderful guest, Jason Wells. Jason Wells.